0: Amen. Please be seated. Well, if you're new uh, to church here, my name is Craig Harris, and I am one of the assistant pastors uh, here at Christ Church. And I am uh, thrilled to be able to bring you God's word this morning. We're going to continue our series through the gospel of John. We'll be in uh, John chapter 5, verses 17 through 29 this morning. Before we get to that, one quick thing I want to make you aware of is in your bulletins, uh, one of the inserts you'll find is this little card that says, Who you eat uh, matters. No, it says, uh, (laughs) That's as good as my jokes get. Who you eat with matters. Um, (laughs) And, uh, you know, our church is going through this, going to be going through this series talking about hospitality, and our our home groups are going through a series uh, as well right now talking about hospitality, and so we wanted to make these um, available uh, to the whole church as to prepare yourself, um, your family, uh, even if you're not in a home group, that you can take this home and read through it and think on these things uh, as we prepare for a series that's going to be coming uh, after Easter. So as we come uh, to this passage this morning, what we're going to find is it picks up right where last week uh, left off, and Jesus is going to be responding to the religious leaders who are questioning him. If you remember from last week, the religious leaders have accused Jesus uh, for breaking the the Sabbath. They thought he he broke the Sabbath uh, because he healed uh, a man uh, on the Lord's Day. And Jesus' initial response in in the passage from last week was in in verse 17. And it was short and sweet where Jesus says this. He says, My father is working until now, and I am working. And Jesus... uh, very succinctly is saying that, listen, when my Father works, I work. And so, you know, it is thought, in Jewish thought that, you know, although God does rest on the Sabbath, He still does work on the Sabbath, right? Uh, he still sustains all things. He still holds all things together. He's not actively creating, but He is still, in some senses, working uh, every day of the week. And so when Jesus is claiming to be working because His Father is working, He's claiming uh, a divinity, The the other thing that the religious leaders are are noticing, paying attention to, and and pointing out is also his language when he calls God, my father. You know, maybe that doesn't seem unusual for us and how we think about God. um, But for them in this time, that was especially uh, strange and especially personal. And so calling God, my father... uh, was not something that they did and and they did not like it. And and those two things led them to uh, accuse Jesus of making himself equal with God. And in our passage this morning, what we're focusing on is in Jesus' response uh, to this challenge uh, that the religious leaders make to him. So I'm going to read this passage starting in verse 17. So hear this, the word of the Lord. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Pray with me. Most merciful and holy Father, we come to you and before your word this morning with expectation and by your spirit, your son, that you will speak to us, that you will open our hearts and our minds and our ears to this truth. May you speak to us now. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. As we consider this passage, as we consider uh, Jesus' response to the religious leaders' accusations uh, that Jesus is equal with God, you know, one thing that we find in his response is this amazing glimpse into the relationship between the Father and the Son. This amazing relationship that is filled with love, that's filled with honor. What we, what we will see is that as the religious leaders are trying to figure out who this Jesus is, Jesus is perplexing them, and they can't figure out who is this man. That Jesus' response to this answer is bound up in, in his relationship with the Father. And the truth is, you cannot understand who Jesus is, that he indeed is God In the flesh, without understanding his relationship to his father, and this is something we experience even today, isn't it? Uh, That our relationships to our earthly fathers give a strong definition to who we are, for better or worse. I mean, this shows forth in 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 maybe work ethic that gets handed down to us. It shows forth in small things like mannerisms, where you see someone doing that, you say, "Oh man, that's the same thing that your father does." And also some of our, our father's struggles get passed on to us, don't they? And for some of us, when we hear this, when we think of the idea of our father, you know, passing down their, their traits to us, it gives us pride. Because, you know, maybe we grew up in a home where our father loved us well, where our father honored us, where we were loved and raised according to Scripture. Or if you're here and you're a father, you might hear this This truth, and you're like, oh man, that's going to inspire me to be like this for my children. But then there's others of us, when we hear this, we feel the opposite of honor. We actually, we feel shame. We feel shame because maybe we grew up in a home where our father uh, was absent, where our father was unkind, where our father wasn't the kind of father that he was supposed to be, and we didn't experience honor from him and love. And the the truth is that since Genesis chapter 3, since the fall in the garden, our relationships with each other and with our parents and with our siblings has been marred with shame. Shame has impacted our relationships. You know, we see this between husband and wife in Genesis 3, where what do they do? Right after they disobey God and they recognize that, that they're naked, they hide. Right? And then they hide their bodies from one another. And then what do they do? As soon as God finds them, they hide from God. And then when God calls them out, what are the, they, they blame each other. And so in this simple you know, relationship in Genesis 3, we see what happens when shame comes into this world. Our relationships turn from one of honor to one of shame, where we hide and we blame. And if you see this further, actually in the first story, out of the garden with Cain and Abel where Cain's, you know, upset that his uh, sacrifice was not acceptable. And instead of, like, repenting and coming to God and seeking to, to give a sacrifice that was acceptable, he lashes out in anger, and he kills his brother. And in these, in these two stories, we find really what shame does to our relationships. It causes us to hide, causes us to blame, to run, and causes us to lash out. And even in the best of our human relationships, we still have these varying degrees of shame where we experience, where we wonder, you know, the people in my life don't really accept me or they can't really accept me or they won't really accept me if they really knew what happens in my heart. So we hide, we run, we lash out. And the, the truth is we do that even with God Is as crazy as it seems because, you know, intellectually we say, Oh, God knows everything, right? God knows the secrets of our hearts. God knows all things. But yet, we still think, like Adam and Eve did, that we can hide from God. And we try to. And we hedge. And we confess some things, but we never confess all things. Because if God only knew what happened in my hearts, then maybe he wouldn't love me. And shame causes us to hide even from God. And what we find in this passage this morning is is a profound answer to this problem. shame. What we find is an invitation. An invitation into the family of God where we're given a father who shares his glory and honor with us. A father who takes our shame and ultimately who restores our honor. And we're going to see this as we look at three different aspects of the relationship between God the Father and God the Son, Jesus. And it is in this relationship that we find our honor the first uh, aspect that we, of the relationship that we're going to look at is Jesus as the Son. We're going to look at Jesus as the Son. And there are two aspects to the Sonship of Christ that we're going to see in this passage. The first is this, it's work. We see this uh, in verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. In Christ's unity with the Father... He joins the work of the Father. Uh, Everything that Jesus is doing is really him joining in what the Father is already doing. And Jesus, in his humility, joins him. Jesus, in his humility, does not have his own agenda. He isn't going rogue, healing people when he's not supposed to heal people on the Sabbath. He doesn't fight for his own will to do as he pleases, but there is one will of God, and Jesus acts in accordance with it. Jesus joins in with the work of his father, and in this way, Jesus is acting as an apprentice to the father, just as a little boy might follow his father into the shop to learn the the traits and the, the secrets that the father knows, so Jesus follows the father. But this is especially mysterious and interesting to think about when we realize that Jesus doesn't need to be taught how to do anything, does he? He's God in the flesh, equal in power and glory to the Father, and yet he submits uh, with joy. You know, to get a sense of this, think about what it must have been like Jesus uh, with his earthly father, Joseph. You know, Joseph was a carpenter. And in those days, you know, the son does the work that the father does. And so if my father's a carpenter, I'm going to be a carpenter. How strange must it have been for Jesus to be taught how to, how to cut wood, how to form wood, how to, how to choose the best wood for a particular task. All the while Jesus, you know, he actually made the trees, <laughs> right? He didn't just plant the seed that grew into the tree, but he actually created trees, right? They were his idea to begin with. How strange it must have been for Jesus to be taught how to use wood, how to form it, how to put it together. I mean, it'd be like me trying to, trying to teach Jimi Hendrix how to play guitar. You all want to see it, but it's not going to happen for multiple reasons. But. And yet, Jesus here humbles himself, right? And, and we, we don't get the sense that Jesus is doing this like begrudgingly, right? He's not whining and complaining. He's like, oh, dad's asking me to take out the trash again, right? But he does it with joy, it's not this work is not beneath him, but it's actually for him. Jesus finds joy when he joins the work of the Father. So how is this possible? How is Jesus, God in the flesh, able to join the work of the Father and have this kind of humility? This is the second aspect of the sonship, and it's because of love. Jesus is able to join the Father because he enjoys the love of the Father. We see this in in verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. The Father loves the Son. And the Son is fueled by the love of the Father, and the Father shows him everything. Everything. God the Father withholds from Jesus nothing that is his. You know, we, we actually experience love in a similar kind of way as we are all sons and daughters or mothers and fathers. You know, one of the ways that parents show their love for us or how we might show our love to our children is by sharing what we have and what we know with them. If you love to cook and bake, then you're probably going to teach your children how to cook and bake. If, if you love to work in the shop and build things, your children are going to follow you into the shop and learn how to build things. We share that which we are and that which we know and that which we have with our children. This is part of the activity of love and Jesus has joined the love of the Father. And he has known this love from eternity past into eternity future. In fact, we, we see that, that the Father before the foundation of the world has had a relationship of love and glory and honor with the Son and with the Spirit, ever-loving, ever-glorifying Himself. You know, you see this actually really clearly if we fast-forward in the Gospel of John to, to John chapter 17 for a moment. And John chapter 17 is this amazing prayer that I can't wait, you know, I don't know what year we'll get to it, maybe in five years or something. But when we do get to it as, as a church, it's, it's an amazing prayer, it's an amazing glimpse Into the relationship between Jesus and the Father, where you get to listen in on this intimate prayer that Jesus is praying. And Jesus uh, says a couple things that are especially interesting in light of this verse. First, in verse 24, is where he actually says, That you have loved me, speaking of God, you have loved me before the foundation of the world, which is to say that before time existed. The Father loved the Son, and the the Son loved the Father. Which is to say that the love between the Father and the Son has no beginning, and it has no end. And it is out of this love and glory and honor that the Father and the Son and the Spirit have for each other, that all that, that is was created. And it is out of this love that the Father and the Son continue to work today. From creation until now, their works are works of love. And Jesus is a part of the family business of restoring and redeeming all things back to this garden state of love and honor, back to a time before shame marred our relationships. And in this, we see a glimpse into the family system of the Trinity when God calls us to himself, he's calling us into this family system that we too might enjoy the love and the honor of the Father. If you jump back into John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer for a moment, I'm going to read to you a couple of verses here. Verses 21 and 22 that, that show us this. That This is Jesus uh, praying, speaking of us, his people. That they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. It's an an amazing truth that we have been given a new family. That despite the, the shame that our earthly families may have given us, we have a new family where our father is God himself, where Jesus is our our brother, where the spirit of God is dwelling within us and us, as body of the church, uniting us through himself, sharing his glory and his honor with us. And in this, he invites us into the family work as well to make God's blessings known, to spread his kingdom throughout this earth. And as our heavenly father, he ever loves us, ever gives us honor, and glory, and is doing the hard work of bringing about his renewal in our hearts and in our minds, slowly but very surely removing the pains of shame that we experience and feel. Telling us, listen, I know you. I see the dark cracks and corners of your hearts, of your lives and minds, and I still want to give you all that I have, which is To say he wants to give us everything, it sounds pretty amazing, right? That God, the Creator of all things, wants to share His love and His glory and His honor with us, and invite us into His work. How is He able to give this kind of glory and honor to us, though? The reason is that is because that He is not only the Son. But he also has authority because he's the judge. This is the second aspect of the relationship between Jesus and the Father that we're going to look at is Jesus as the judge. And at at first, this point might seem kind of counterintuitive if we're thinking about shame and honor. Do we really get honor through a judge? You know, what do judges do but they pronounce judgment? (laughs) And what does judgment do but bring about feelings of guilt and shame? So how does Jesus, as judge, bring honor to us? How does Jesus, as judge, bring us into relationship with him? And the answer is because it brings honor to him. We see this in verse 22 and verse 23. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And also John in verse 27. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Jesus is saying that, listen, because the father has given me this role of judge, I should be honored. Jesus as judge causes everybody to honor him because a judge is a position of authority. If you think about it like this, think about it in terms of a courtroom, what do we call a judge? Your Honor, right? The judge is the honorable position because they hold the position and authority to be able to decide what is just and what isn't just, right? Whatever they decree happens. And who better to judge than Jesus, who is God in the flesh, flesh, who can't pronounce any judgment that isn't just I mean isn't that what we want out of our court systems we want our court systems to be just and we don't want a judge that can be bribed right or bought or even good judges can make mistakes but Jesus is righteousness in the flesh he is the judge that you think that we would want who better than him to be the judge when he actually invented and gave us the law And the magnitude of what Jesus is saying and claiming, I think we can see even further in verse 27. When Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, he says this, And he has given him authority to execute judgment. Why? Because he is the Son of Man. You know, the phrase Son of Man can mean a handful of different things. But one thing that Jesus is referring to is in the prophets. And we're going to read that in a moment from Daniel chapter 7. But this is, what we're about to read is something that the religious leaders would have known, right? That they believed that judgment would one day come, that one day they would stand before God and give an account for the things that they had done. Uh, that one before day they would stand before God. And, and Jesus, in calling himself the judge and the Son of Man, is saying something profound. And we're going to look at that real quick uh, from Daniel chapter 7. You can listen to this from verse 9 and 10, and then verses 13 through 14. This is from a vision that Daniel had. And as I looked, thrones were placed, and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, and and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And what Jesus is saying to them is that the the son of man that Daniel speaks of is me. Jesus is saying that you are right, that one day you will stand before God and you will be judged and I will be your judge. And in this, we see this other layer to this relationship between father and the son, where the father gives this profound role to the son, where he gives him everything. He gives him the power to judge. And because he does that, it brings Jesus honor and glory. If you think about the religious leaders, they would have been floored at this. You know, at the end of this chapter, after Jesus' conversation with them is over, we actually get no recorded response of, of the religious leaders. I kind of imagine that they would have just been floored, stunned, silent. I don't think their minds would have been changed (laughs) in wanting to kill Jesus. But there's still a question, isn't there? Even if the judge is good, even if the judge is just, what if I'm guilty? Right? What if... I deserve the, the punishment that is coming my way. What if I have committed and done a crime, which we are all guilty of doing? The pronouncement of guilt is still shameful. You know, for instance, it makes me think of, you know, when I was a child, I was in the when I was in the fifth grade, I got caught in a book, Theft Ring. You know, it's not, maybe not what you'd imagine, you know, a theft run to look like we're in the fifth grade. But for whatever reason, me and my friends in the fifth grade decided that we were going to steal some books from a book fair. And so after this went on for a handful of days in a row, soon the teachers and the people that ran this book fair caught on. They realized that, hey, there's books that uh, aren't here anymore and no one bought any, so something's happening. These books have either grown legs or someone's taking them. And so soon they figured out that this happened, you know, you know when our class uh, went in there and when they left, they, 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 re, they put two and two together and realized that someone from our class was taking these books. Little, little did they know that it was half of our class <laughs> that was taking these books. And as the, you know, principal and as the people from the book fair and other uh, and, and um, administrative people walked into the classroom, I knew what they were looking for. And, you know, the amount of shame and the weight that I felt was profound. I can still remember it. You know, sitting, you know, row four, uh, chair three. I just wanted to crawl inside my desk and hide. You know, the shame that Adam and Eve experienced in the garden was real for me there, where I just wanted to hide. And then I also did something. I I defended myself, right? I, I lied. I did everything I could to protect myself. I shifted blame. And then judgment came, and I lost recess for the rest of the year, which was a just sentence, right? I was guilty, but the judgment still left me with shame and no real way to remedy that. So how does judgment bring us honor then? Where is the hope for us in judgment when we are guilty? And this is found when when we find that the judge not only has the power to condemn, but he has the power to pardon. Because Jesus is not only the judge, we find here that Jesus is the giver of life. This is our final aspect of this relationship between Jesus and the Father. We're going to look at this morning is that Jesus is the giver of life. And we see this in a few different verses here. First in verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Further in verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. You know, one of the problems with uh, the religious leaders in this passage is that they're expecting Jesus to be like a normal prophet. You know, a flesh and bones kind of prophet. A prophet who has a birth date and a death date kind of prophet. And Jesus is saying, listen, I am something new that you have not seen before. He's trying to help them understand, listen, I'm not speaking on behalf of God. I am speaking as God. That he's not only doing God-like things, you know, like miracles that the prophets did. But he's doing God-things, like create and give new life. Let me read verse 26 again to you. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. So just as the Father can create life, so the Son can create life. That Jesus not only heals the lame and the blind, but he gives new life. And Jesus, enjoining the work of the Father as the Son, as the judge, as a giver of life, shows his love for the Father and his work here on earth. And as mysterious as it is, this work includes his work on the cross. Where even on the cross, when he gives up his life, he is doing the work that the Father has sent Jesus to do. And even or especially maybe in this, we find what it means for Jesus to love the Father and for the Father to love the Son. And for both of them to love us. And this is where we find this great exchange where Jesus takes our judgment upon himself and gives us life. Where he takes death and shame upon himself and gives us, gives, gives us life and honor. And he can do this because he has the authority to do this as the judge and as the son and as the giver of life. You know, verse 24 tells us this, that the one who believes in Jesus does, does not come under judgment, but is actually passed from death to life, from shame to honor. And in this, Jesus is beginning to restore all of creation, making all things new, restoring humanity, recreating us, having us to be born again, restored in the image of God And he does this by making us family, by making us his own flesh and blood, restoring the image of God by giving us his glory and his honor and taking the weight and the pains of shame and sin from us. So Jesus, as the second Adam brings new life, making a way for us back into fellowship with the Father, bringing us back into his family, dwelling fully within us. And as we consider this amazing truth, you know, there's a call for us. That as we're brought into the family of God, as we're loved and as we're cherished and as we're honored by Him, that we are called also to honor Him. We see this in verse 23. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. So we're called to respond to the honor that we're given by honoring God. So how do we honor God? We honor Him. By joining him in our works. By doing good. We see this in verse 29, uh, 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. And those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So when we have faith and put our faith in Christ. We respond with honor. And then we respond With our lives. Now, this isn't telling us that we're saved by our works. You know, verse 24 and the rest of Scripture is clear that it's faith in Christ that saves us. But when we are saved, when we are rescued, and when we are restored, honoring Jesus will be lived out in our works because it has effects and changes us here and now. To turn away from our sin, to cling to good, to love and serve our neighbors as Christ loved and serves us. So when we are offended, We don't have to feel like we need to constantly defend our own honor because Christ already has because the giver of life is with us. And when we feel the weight of shame, whether it's our own sin or whether it's the sin of others weighing us down, we can turn to Jesus and remember that he has taken that away. And he gives us life. You know, we see this weekly as we worship, as we confess sins, as we come to this table. Each week we're reminding ourselves of this, this truth, that the weight of shame and sin does not win, but we have been given new life here and now. I mean, can you imagine living lives without shame, without feeling like we need to hide and defend and lash out at people, being free of the burden that it hangs in our lives, brothers and sisters, in Christ, he truly takes that burden and that weight from us so that in the end, on, on judgment day, we will meet more than our judge, but we will meet the one who has been judged for us. And on that day when we see Jesus, a judgment, we will see more than the one who gives us life, but we will be meeting the one who has given his life for us. And while we wait for that day, He strengthens us and encourages us. And as we dwell on this, may this truth help us to live here and now, not out of the shame that has been given to us uh, through Adam, but out of the honor and love and glory that has been given to us through Jesus. Pray with me. Most merciful and gracious Father, our Lord, who has given us life. May we cling to this truth. May we know that you truly have taken and are taken away the pains of of sin and death, so that the shame that we've experienced in our life does not weigh us down, but we are buoyed by the life that you have given us. May you breathe this new life into us. May you help us to not forget. May you help us to fight for this love and honor and glory that you've shared with us. Pray and trust that you will continue to do these things through us by your Spirit, by the Son, by the Father, who are one now and forever, and who have invited us to be one with you. Amen.